This is Truth Encounter, and our discussion today turns to an analysis of the kind of leadership that can inspire the next generation. Intellectuals laughed at Winston Churchill screaming against the threat of Nazism from 1930 to 1940. But when the Luftwaffe started flying toward London, who did Parliament come looking for? A man with convictions. What about you? Can you think of ten things you would be willing to live and die for? Turn in your Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and let's join our discussion leader, Dr. Dave Wurtzen, with our study titled, Leadership, the Next Generation. Eisenhower took the approach when the other party took over Congress, he decided to go along with it. And he worked with the Congress, and he ended up being reelected. Truman took just the opposite tact, and Harry Truman fought against the Congress during his last two years, and he took just an opposite track, and contrary to all popular opinion, in fact, my mom and dad told me about this election when I was a little kid. They said they went to bed. They knew for sure that Harry Truman wouldn't be the president. When they woke up, he was president. I don't think my mom and dad ever recovered from that. So Truman took just the opposite approach. What was really gripping me is that here we have, you know, the, the politicians and they're debating. They're debating, you know, which tax should we take? You know, should we take a conservative tax? Should we take a liberal tax? We're all about politicians trying to figure out which side should I join? You know, which tax should I take? And how should I alter my, my basic convictions and everything so I can be sure to get elected the next time? Nelson Mandela wrote this from the Robin prison. He wrote this about how you sustained in his long walk of freedom. From an isolation cell in Robin Island, he noted in his diary, I have found, I get this, I have found that one can bear the unbearable if one can keep one's spirits strong even when one's body is being tested. Strong convictions. Strong convictions are the secret of surviving deprivation. Your spirit can be full when your stomach is empty. I want to read that to you again. From prison, Nelson Mandela writes, I have found that one can bear the unbearable if one can keep one's spirit strong, even when one's body is being tested. Strong convictions, they are the secret of surviving deprivation. Your spirit can be full even when your stomach is empty. Strong convictions, convictions that do not change with the next public opinion polls, this is the difference between politicking and leading. Spiritual leadership demands this non-waffling steadiness. As we close the book of Deuteronomy, we're introduced to a man who had those kind of convictions. What I want all of you to stop and think about are there 10 convictions in your life that you would be willing to live and die for? Over the next couple weeks, I'd like you to get out a white sheet of paper or any color you want. I want you to get out your computer or get out a pencil, get out your pen, and I want you to try to jot down on a piece of paper convictions that you would be willing to live and die for. I think one of the greatest needs, not just in our country, not just in business, not just in, in our society generally, but I think one of the greatest needs as born-again believers is for us to have strong convictions, for us to have some foundations 
that it doesn't make any difference what the public opinion poll is. It doesn't make any difference whether or not we're going to be able to maintain our power, our influence, our job, or anything else. This is what, as an individual, we live for. And this is what, as a family, we're willing to live for. This is what, as a church family, we're going to live for. Leaders have that kind of conviction in their soul. And as we close the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, Moses had that kind of conviction. Moses had that kind of commitment. And what we're going to do today, we've got a rare privilege. I've been telling you all the way through our study of the book of Deuteronomy that this was a Hebrew book, that it was a book that uh, was the foundation of the Israelite people. In fact, as the Jewish people spread out all over Europe and spread out all over, the world literally began to have hopes for their coming, being able to come back to their homeland. The book of Deuteronomy was the foundation that gave them courage. Many of them gave them courage to believe, yes, we could come back. And what we'd like to do is we close the book of Deuteronomy. We have a friend of Jonathan's from UT. We have Abner, just like Abner. You've read the story of Abner in the Old Testament, one of the mighty generals. I'm going to have him come up, and Abner's going to read for you. You can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and just so you can follow along while he reads, you can follow along beginning with verse 4, okay? Deuteronomy 32, 4, and you'll be able to tell exactly what he's saying as he reads the Hebrew. No. What I'm going to do is give you a feel. I think it's very easy as Americans for us to think there's something magical or something mysterious about the text. And I want to show you that this was really a living language, that there really were Israelite people. And even today there are those that uh, speak this language fluently. And so I think it will be very meaningful for us to have Avner come and read this text for us. Avner? Vayomer Adonai Elav, Zot haaretz asher nishbati leavraam, leitzchak uleyaakov, lemor lezarachai etnena. Heraticha beenecha, veshama lota avor. Vayamat sham, Moshe eved Adonai, beeretz moav, alpi Adonai. Vayikboroto bagai, beeretz moav, מול בית פאור, ולא ידע איש את קבורתו עד היום הזה. ומשה, בן מאה ועשרים שנה במותו, לא קהתה עינו, ולא נס ליכה. ויבכו בני ישראל את משה, בערבות מואב, שלושים יום, ויתמו ימי בכי אבל משה. ויהושע בן נון, מלא רוח חוכמה, כי שמח משה את ידיו עליו, וישמעו אליו בני ישראל, ויעשו כאשר ציווה אדוני את משה. ולא קם נביא עוד בישראל כמשה, אשר ידעו אדוני פנים אל פנים. ולכל האותות והמופתים, אשר שלחו אדוני לעשות, בארץ מצרים, לפרעה ולכל עבדיו, ולכל ארצו, ולכל היד החזקה, ולכל המורא הגדול אשר עשה משה לעיני כל ישראל. And God said to him, This is the land which I swear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means to your descendants, I shall give. I showed it to you with your eyes, but there you won't pass. And he died there, Moses, the slave of Adonai, in the land of Moab, according to Adonai. And he buried him in valley, in the land of Moab, opposite the house of Peor, and nobody knew where he was buried until this day. 
and Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes had not weakened, his strength has not failed. And the sons of Israel cried for Moses in the wilderness of Moab for 30 days, and they completed the days of crying Moses mourning. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hand upon him. And all the sons of Israel obeyed him, and they acted according to Adonai commandment to Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet like Moses in Israel, who Adonai knew face to face. To all the wonders and miracles which Adonai sent to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all his land, and to all the strong hand and to all the great wonders which Moses did before the eyes of all Israel. I'm just going to expect all of you, when you go to Israel, to be able to do that in reverse. Abner started reading with verse 4, and you notice he talked about a promise that was made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The very first thing I want you to know about this founding father, as we talk about the death of this founding father, the text of Deuteronomy reminds us about the central piece of his life, about the fundamental conviction that he built his entire ministry, his entire leadership of the people upon, and it's this strange expression where we read about a promise that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You see that? Where it talks about the promise that was made. This is the promise that I, this is the land that I promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob there in verse 4. And I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over it. From Mount Nebo, you can look way up to the north of the land. You can see Mount Hermon, which is over about 10,000 feet high. You could sweep with your eyes a little bit to the south, and you can see the land of Samaria, Ephraim. You could come down and look to the south and see the mountains of Judah down into the Negev. And then you could kind of sweep around and just straight in front of you down the valley, you could see the palm city of Jericho. And what the text does is kind of just give you a panoramic overview of the entire promised land. And you can picture Moses, he's on Mount Pisgah, which is across the, uh, the Rift Valley of the Dead Sea. And he's looking into the promised land, looking to the north, then look, sweeping to the south, and then back around and looking just directly opposite himself. And the Lord said, Moses, I've let you see the land, but you're not going to be able to go in. Now, what was so significant about that land? And what's so significant about this promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? As you open up the Bible, this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is what holds the entire story together. You turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and for some of you this will be reviewed, but it's, it's very important as we study the Word of God together for you to understand how it comes together. And this promise, this promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob is the promise that is the thread that carries through the entire story of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God appeared to Abram. And Abram was living in the city of Ur of the Chaldees, way over in Mesopotamia. The Lord came to him and it says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, leave your people and your father's house, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. The very first part of the Abrahamic covenant is what the editor of the close of Deuteronomy is telling us about the life of Moses. There was a promise that was made about the land to about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants possessing the land. 
And what that promise does is go right back to Genesis chapter 12, and we're reading it right here. And, I, and the Lord promises Abram, you are to go to a land that I will show you. So the very first part of the Abrahamic covenant is what? The land. Everyone tell me? The land. Okay, now look at the next part. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So the second part of the promise is nation, a land and a nation. Let's say that. Land, number one, nation. Now, the third part of the promise is very important. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then it makes this statement, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So there's three parts of this promise. Land, nation, blessing. And it's like, it's like the clues to a mystery story. In other words, now we know, as we open up the page of Genesis chapter 12, that the creator God of Genesis 1 and 2 is now going to move with a specific group of people. You see, as we open up to Genesis 12, remember that the Tower of Babel had just taken place. The nations have now been dispersed. All different languages begin to develop. And we ask the question, what's the Almighty God going to do about this? And he begins to call one man, a, name, a man named Abram. And he calls him from Ur the Chaldean. He says, Abram, I'm going to promise you three things. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to be a blessing. Somehow, through you, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. Turn over to Genesis chapter 15. And God reaffirms the promise again. Look, it says to Abram in verse 1, Don't be afraid, Abram. I will be your shield, and I will be your very great reward. Look what it says down in verse 4. Because Abram doesn't have a child. He's getting very old. He still doesn't have a child. And God says to him, This man, your servant, Eliezer, will not be your heir. In verse 4, but a son coming from your own body will be the heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens, count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And God is once again affirming to Abram that he is going to become the father of a multitude of people. It's called the Abrahamic promise. Turn over to chapter 17. God reaffirms the promise again. Look at verse 4. As for me, Yahweh speaking, this is my covenant with you. This is my promise with you. You will be the father of many nations. You will no longer be called Avram, which means the exalted father, but you will be called Avraham, which means the, the father of many, the father of a multitude. And so God is affirming over and over again. You can turn over to chapter uh, 28, and you turn over near the end of the book of Genesis. And God is speaking to Jacob when Jacob, the grandson of Abram, had to flee the promised land and was going up into Haran. Once again, God reaffirms the promise. Look at uh, chapter 28, verse 13. There above it stood the Lord. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. You see the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now look what he says to Jacob. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the peoples on the earth will be what? Tell me. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now, I want to tell you something about this verse. In Hebrew, you use the word seed for offspring. And the word seed for offspring can be singular and it can also be plural. 
Just like I could say, like, Jonathan is my seed. Joel is my seed. Joshua is my seed. Janae is my seed. They are my seed, plural. And as those generations, you know, Lord willing, as those generations develop and grow, we might have hundreds of thousands of Wurtzens. Who knows? It might become just as common as Smith. You never know. Okay? But I can also say that just one of my sons is my seed. You see, I can say Jonathan is my seed. And so I can use the word to refer to all my descendants, also one of my descendants, okay? Now that's real, real important. Because in the Abrahamic covenant, it involves a land, it involves a seed that is going to be focused individually, but also plurally, and it also involves somehow becoming a blessing to all the world. Somehow, through the sons of Abraham, somehow through the daughters of Abraham, somehow through, through Abraham's people, all the world's going to be blessed. Now, Moses particularly focused on preserving the nation. In fact, Moses was used, you might say, to give birth to the nation out of Egypt. That's what we've been studying about. He was the great founding father, the George Washington of ancient Israel, and he delivered the people through the power of Yahweh out of Egypt. And so he gave his whole life to preserving these people. Second of all, he spent his whole life focused on the land, of going into the land. But at the culmination of his career, the Lord says, no, you can't go into the land. Now, the third part, the third part is the blessing. In the book of Deuteronomy, we've learned that one of the ways that the people of Israel brought a blessing to all the world was through the law. In fact, Moses will say in the book of Deuteronomy, other nations will look at your Deuteronomic law. They're going to look at the Ten Commandments and they're going to say, you are a wise and holy people. Look at the ethics that you have. Look at the standards for living you have. Look at the law that you have. And so that's part of Deuteronomy. But I want you to see something else. It's kind of like Deuteronomy ends without resolving the court. It's like it ends without, it's almost like we anticipate another, you know, we got to keep going. Because we're not into the land, and we haven't figured out yet how this people is going to bless all the nations. How is all the world going to be blessed by what God does through these sons of Abraham poised, getting ready to go into the promised land? And so the book of Deuteronomy leads you on into the story of the Bible. It leads you on to the story of Joshua and Joshua going in and possessing the land. The story of the Old Testament shows how we go back and forth and Israel fights its enemies, but Israel turns away from God. So they get thrown out of their land. In fact, the story of this land thing is still going on. Like Avner served in the military for several years. He had to devote hours and hours of his life trying to ensure the security of Israel. Why? Because there's an incredible battle in the world over that land. It's been dominating the news. These ancient promises, this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is somehow all threaded together and tied in to the fabric of history. It has a lot to do with what's happening on a worldwide scene. So the story goes on. Also, the blessing idea goes on. Now, I want to ask you a question. You say, well, Dave, what does the Abrahamic promise mean to me? What about the convictions of my life? You're telling me that Moses devoted his entire life to the Abrahamic covenant. Yes. If Moses were here today and he were 120 years old and I, I put him up here in this stool, I said, Moses, 
tell me a little bit about your leadership of the people of Israel. And I would say, well, Moses, was there, was there ever some hard times? And Moses would say, well, yes, there, there really were some hard times. In fact, half the time the people wanted to go back to Egypt. So I would say, well, Moses, why don't you just take a popularity vote and just go back to Egypt? Why don't you just settle down? Wasn't that a good land? And Moses would say, yeah, it was an excellent land, but we were slaves down in Egypt. But I said, but Moses, but, but you were at least, you know, you at least had food. You didn't have to wander around the wilderness. You had a place that was dry and, and, and in the, at night, you had a nice place of security. Why in the world did you keep moving towards the land? And Moses would say, because of the promise. And I would say, but Moses, you just told me that half the time the people wanted to go back. And don't we build our convictions on what, what the majority of the people want to do? You know, don't you just change your convictions? Can't you see Moses? Oh, when he's about 90, he says, you know what, guys? I think we're going to change the basic thrust of the people of Israel out here in the wilderness. I think we're going to turn around. The promised land's going to be down in Egypt. And we're just going to march back and we're going to let the Lord open the sea in reverse. And we're just going to go back to live in the land of Egypt. Because basically that's what you wanted to do my whole career. How many think Moses would ever lead the people like that? It'd be like Nelson Mandela. He gets out of prison and saying, you know what? I think apartheid was a great idea. There's a lot of people in this land that believe in apartheid. You know, maybe we ought to put it in. Can you imagine Nelson Mandela saying that? You see the difference between conviction and blowing with the flow? You have got to, in your life, get some convictions that you don't just flow with the flow. And one of the convictions I want you to have is the importance, just like Moses was committed to what we call the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with the fathers, I want you to be committed to it. You say, Dave, why should I be committed to it? Because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that you have become part of this. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in the first century said that by a miracle of God's grace, we that are Gentiles, we that are not some of the physical chosen people of God, can take part in this Abrahamic covenant. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. He, that is the Lord Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abram, Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. He, that is God, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through the Messiah Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now notice what it says in the next verse. It begins to explain this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been daily established, so it is in this case. Moses is referring to the law. What he's arguing in this passage is, does the Sinaitic covenant that was given in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses nullify the promise that God gave to Abraham that we've been talking about so far in our study? We will have to pick up our discussion at this point next time. Why not take a careful look at Galatians chapter 3 for yourself? Is it your conviction that the true God did call Abraham in Genesis 12 and make a promise to him that all the people on the earth would be blessed somehow through his offspring? How does Jesus Christ fulfill this Old Testament prediction? How does this gracious promise made with Abraham relate to the legal covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai many years later? These are tough questions, and yet they hold the key to helping us understand what in the world God is doing. Why not take some time this week 
and begin working on that list of 10 convictions that you would be willing to live and die for. Dave will be sharing some of his list with us on our next encounter with the truth.